0: Well, we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we have come to chapter 17. And as we get to 17, um, he's going to begin to talk to his disciples. He has been um, <laughs> been kind of addressing some of the issues that uh, the Pharisees were engaged in. They were... Looking at those that were coming to see Jesus and they were rejecting them and saying, "How can this man be with these types of people?" and they were um, they were just saying, "Yeah, surely he's not a prophet, you know surely these people um, are not the kind of people a good man would want to be around and so into that was chapter fifteen into chapter sixteen um, in chapter fifteen, Jesus goes and talks about you want to know how because Um, How does a woman respond when she finds a lost coin? Maybe something that was a part of her dowry. How how does a a man feel when he, a shepherd feel when he finds that lost sheep? How does a father feel when a son who's left and gone away into all kinds of trouble and um, wasteful living and he comes home and he restores relationship with that father? How does a father feel And and that's essentially an answer to those that were saying, how could Jesus possibly be willing to meet with these tax collectors, these sinners, these prostitutes? Because they were were just coming to him. There was like this steady stream of those people that were wanting to be with the Lord. And so he speaks to them those parables. He talks about, um, in chapter 16, um, they had this view that if you were wealthy, you were right with God, and if you were poor, you probably weren't. And so he um, begins to address that issue, and he gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is like, listen, the rich man was not okay. Um, it was Lazarus, the one that was despised in this life, that he actually had the right standing with the Lord. And so he, he's challenging many of their ideas <clears throat> and many of their concepts. So this is the backdrop that we have seen. And so we move into chapter 17, and we're going to just make our way down to verse 19. And what does Jesus esteem? So the Lord has said, those things which are highly esteemed among men are an abomination in the sight of God. Well, what is highly esteemed by the Lord? And so whether it was meant to be, uh, these are the things that the Lord esteems or not, that's the way we're going to take it, and we're going to apply it. We do know these are the things that He um, is esteeming. And we begin there with Number one, Jesus esteems the faith of others. He places a high priority in another person's faith in the Lord. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So some pretty strong language here. Um, This is no doubt looking at the scribes and the Pharisees who were offending the little ones, those that were coming with a childlike faith. The, the, The scribes and the Pharisees were condemning them and rejecting them, but Jesus was welcoming them as children. And he says, there are those who seek to keep these type of people Um, at arm's length, but I've got strong words for them. And and so he talks about a millstone being tied around their neck, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But notice this first. It is impossible that no offenses should come. So what does that tell you? You should expect that offenses are going to come. You should expect that there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be trouble that is going to happen. And Jesus says it's a, you, you, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. It is going to happen. And the word that is used here for uh, offenses is the Greek word scandalon. You can probably get an idea of where we get an English word from it. Kind of different meaning, but scandalous and scandalon. You can kind of hear the similarity in sound. But um, this means that which causes someone to sin. When somebody would fall or they would uh, be enticed to a bad doctrine. So there are those that would, would offend by enticing to a false doctrine. There's those that would offend by enticing people to engage in sin. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But this noun, scandalon, refers to, in its most uh, physical you know, uh, application, so not in the figurative sense, but in like uh, a physical sense, The noun refers to a death trap, which is baited, so that when the bait is touched, the stick holding that bait springs the trap, and boom, scandalon happens. Something bad happens, right? And so that is how this word was used um, if you're out in the field, all right? If you're out trying to trap something, you would use this word. It's like, well, how do these two things... um, have any correlation between you know some little furry animal getting smashed by a rock that sets the trap and somebody who's being enticed into apostasy well both of them have rune don't they one is a physical rune of life and one is a spiritual rune and so that's that's why this this idea of and this word is used it's used often actually in the new testament and as the pharisees and the scribes that were causing dangerous offenses to the publicans to the tax collectors to the prostitutes and they were they were that trap their teaching their jeering their whatever they would say when they would come uh, come along these people were coming to the lord and these guys were like a trap saying you think he's going to accept you you think god's going to accept you that guy from nazareth He might accept you. That guy who we don't even know who his dad is, he might accept you, but I promise you, God will not accept you. Scandalon. It was a trap, and they were offending people. And and so when we read that it's impossible that no offenses should come, what Jesus is saying, there is going to be all kinds of things, all kinds of traps out there that are going to seek to ensnare people in sin, that are going to seek to ensnare people in doctrine, you've got to be aware. We, we should not be surprised that there are many false teachers. We should not be surprised that there are so many that entice people to sin saying that it's okay. Read the book of Jude. The whole book of Jude was pretty much written for that one issue right there. That you can sin and live however you want to, and it really doesn't matter because God's grace is going to take care of you. It's like, oh, really? Well, let's just do a little run through the Old Testament and see what happens with people who walk in sexual immorality. And you can read the book of Jude. It addresses that issue head on. So when we see things happen around us, and there's a, a, somebody's being led astray, whether it be morally, spiritually, or doctrinally, we should not say, I can't believe this, and start wringing our hands, and oh no, what's happening? Listen, we should be deeply concerned that it's happening, but we should not be taken by surprise that it's happening. Because Jesus said, it's going to happen. It's impossible to stop it. This is going to take place. Which should read to us, like, well, then I better pay attention. If it's impossible that these things cannot be stopped or it's, it's you know, going gonna, gonna to happen no matter what, then how ought I to be living? If, if, there's a, if there's a trap, there's a big rock with a stick under it and there's some bait on there, and that is going to fall and it's going to bring ruin to people spiritually, I should be on the lookout. I should be paying attention I should be aware. In one sense, think of it as if you knew you were walking through a minefield. It's been mostly cleared. <laughs> mostly cleared. It's you, know, it's, you know, pretty good chance you're going to make it. But it's, it's definitely going to have mines in it. Do you think you would walk differently through that than you would through um, a stroll down the beach at sunset? where you know it's clear and clean and there's no concern. Obviously, you're going to walk differently. We need to know that it is certain that these types of things that bring spiritual ruin to people, it happens. So, where you're like, well, not me. Well, the Bible says to those who think they stand, take heed, what? Lest you fall. And so we need to walk carefully carefully. There are wolves. There are erring brothers in the community of the faith. So don't be surprised. Don't feel like, oh, no, the church is, you know, all of a sudden dealing with something and all is lost. And no, no, Jesus said, this is going to happen. He gave the parable of, of that, that tree that would grow and the birds of the air would come and would lodge in the branches of the tree. And now if you read that parable, you think, oh, that's such a nice thing for the Lord to do for those poor little birds You're not understanding the parable. The birds are evil in the parable, and the branches are uh, aspects of the church, and that evil people are going to find their way into, even to the church of Jesus Christ. Like, well, are you sure? Well, read your New Testament. Read the epistles of the New Testament, and look how much trouble how much scandal, uh, scandal on was taking place, even inside the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul said of a good friend of his, even Demas has forsaken me, having a love for this present world. So these things happen, therefore be on guard and so no doubt he's looking back at these Pharisees who are doing that, and he is causing problems. He's putting stumbling blocks in front of those that would come. He's put, they, they've put the, um, such a heavy load of their traditions on men and women that it was impossible. You know, they even came to a point in time that they said that their traditions were more perfect and pure than the Word of God. And that even if God came and himself wanted to correct him that he would be wrong. That's how committed these guys were to their traditions. Uh, Don't don't confuse their traditions with the good law of the Lord given to Moses. There is a difference. And so, anyway, this is the ones. So whether it was keeping people from coming or whether it's once they came, of just making it almost impossible to be able to actually walk with the Lord. And there are people um, that can, can walk th- this way, even in our day. They can maybe sometimes, uh, they can do it um, un- even unwittingly. You can do something that's having an impact upon a person. But it's the ones that are witting about their actions that are most concerning. And what does Jesus say? Well, he talks about a millstone. He got a picture of a millstone here. And imagine this, this would be tied around... That's a very vivid picture, isn't it? Um, There it is. All right, that's beautiful. Okay, imagine that. So you have, like, this is a particular, uh, an olive press, and that wheel would go around, and it would, you know, crush the olives. The oil would go in there, and, you, you know, they would catch it as it ran out. But imagine having that tied around your neck and being thrown into the ocean. Do you think you're going down? Yeah, you're going down, you know, head first, feet straight up real fast. I mean, it is a certain death. And what Jesus says is, well, for those who would cause one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better if that was tied around your neck and you were thrown in the depths of the ocean. That's, that's, the, that's the preferable outcome to what the Lord has in store for those who causes people's faith to be destroyed. And there are people... They just get dead set on this. Um, you know, Jason, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a teacher at Vista High, um, and I was a youth pastor at Calvary Chapel Vista. Jason was in the youth group at that, that same church. And um, they, there was a teacher at Vista High, and she would tell the kids that it was her goal to try and destroy their faith and ruin their belief before they left the school. It is better for her, maybe she repented, that would be beautiful, and she can go try to restore those. But I remember talking with many of the kids in the youth group that had her and all the challenges, we had like an apologetics class to get ready for her, right? And there, but it, it would be better for her that a millstone would be tied around her neck and she'd be thrown into the depths of the sea than to have to face the Lord and the judgment that he's going to bring. Why? Because he esteems faith. Faith is what the Lord is concerned about. The New Testament is full of exhortation that tells us to monitor our conduct in such a way that we had never cause anyone to stumble, that unwitting kind of action we would maybe be engaged in, or cause somebody's faith to falter. Romans chapter 14, verse 21, It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended. And the word offended is scandalizo, so it's related here, or is made weak. So, you know, what's going on? Eat meat, drink wine, and that causes somebody to be aff- offended. I mean, just in short, you know, they were getting meat and they were purchasing it in the market, but that mar- that meat had previously been offered up at, pick your, you know, most... Uh, wicked pagan temple where they were offering up animals and then that meat would be taken and it would be sold in the marketplace. And um, for some people they went, and they went well okay that's all right. I'm not bothered by it. you know the it's a false god anyway. It's not real. It's not true and I'm not going to the temple and worshiping. I'm just going to get some hamburger. That's it. That's all I'm trying to do. And other people were like how could you possibly how could you possibly do that? How could you possibly eat that meat knowing that it was offered to an idol? You're making yourself one with an idol. And what the New Testament forbids is that a believer would go to a temple and would engage in worship and would eat meat that was offered up there. But Paul says if you can get a really good deal on a good cut of steak out in the marketplace, don't ask where it came from. And if somebody comes to your house, don't tell them where it came from. Just enjoy your steak. And that's what he said to do. But if somebody knows where it came from and it would cause them to stumble, that is, there would be some kind of ruin that would come to their faith, then don't eat or don't drink wine or don't do anything that would cause your brother or sister to be offended. Now, I will say this. I think we overuse this word, at least in this context. So a lot of times people... When they say, you stumble me, what they mean to say is, I don't like what you're doing. Which is different than being offended. Offended means your faith is about to be destroyed. So, you know, some are offended um, that if you were to watch the NFL, if you were to watch any sports, some would be offended if you went to the market on, on Sunday, some would be offended if you went to uh, uh, Disney World or Disneyland, some would be offended if I mean, there's all kinds of things that people get offended by. You know, don't have, you know, this phone company, don't book your ticket through this, you know, online thing. And it's like people find all of these things and um, that is what they, they how they want to live their life. And there's freedom and there's liberty for each of us to make those decisions. But because somebody watches football on Sunday and you don't actually think that they should... Are you saying that you're ready to have certain ruin to your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, no, no, no. I just don't think they should do it. Okay, that's fine. You, you're entitled to have that opinion. But let's not try and take this, chapter 14, verse 21, and apply it. There's a difference between being stumbled by and I don't approve of it. Do you, do you see the distinction? And I think sometimes we just confuse that verbiage but if it's going to cause somebody to, to, to have that rock, um, whatever it is, doctrine, you know, some kind of liberty that you have, and it's going to smash them, then Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't, don't walk out that, that liberty. 1 Corinthians 8, 9-13 talks a little more about this. It says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Um, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because your knowledge of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... Stumble here is that same Greek word we've been talking about because there's about three different Greek words that can be used. At least two, I think there's three Greek words that can be, uh, are translated in English uh, as offenses or stumble. But here in verse 13, uh, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, skandalizo, I will never eat meat. Well, again, eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. So again, the idea is, if, if me walking out a particular liberty is going to cause a brother or sister's faith to um, uh, to perish, then then we should forego that liberty rather than try to impose. So I just I wanted to put this out there is that there, even a, you know you can, I said you can maybe uh, wittingly or unwittingly right. Wittingly is the false prophet. Wittingly is a person that's enticing somebody to live a life of sin because God doesn't care. That is a witting offense. They are fully aware of what they're trying to do. That school teacher at Vista. But an unwitting offense would be my liberty, which I have freedom before the Lord, actually begins to cause ruinous harm to the faith of another person. And so Paul says, well, if that's the case... I'll just give up eating meat altogether. So this is what Jesus is saying. It's better to have a millstone tied around somebody's neck. Now, if you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know. If I've got a liberty, and it's my liberty, and it's going to offend somebody, they just need to get over it. Okay. I mean, you can take that route, but if it is genuinely ruining their faith, just think of the millstone and that. Meat's not going to seem nearly as tasty to you because the consequences are so severe. And so what, you know, you know, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What does God esteem? He esteems the faith of mankind. Those that are putting their trust... Think of the price that he has paid. The Father sent his Son. Jesus suffered and died on the cross, and he's looking forward to this. It hasn't happened yet, but he's looking forward to this. And if somebody's going to seek to undo the faith that I purchased at a high price, watch out. Whether we have weak faith or strong faith, um, God is pleased in faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6, you know the verse. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the Lord loves it, and he rewards it. So you don't want to be found in the place. Even if it's a weak faith of somebody, you, you, you don't want to seek to tamper with it. So my actions, whether they seem justifiable or not, if it causes somebody to have a legitimate stumbling of their faith, not just you don't like it, but a legitimate stumbling of faith, then that is something that I should adjust my, my, my conduct with. So, hey, what are some things that people get stumbled by? Um, well, we spoke of the liberty. But let me just say this, and I realize this is going to be hard to for some to hear. But you know what causes more damage to somebody's faith than just about anything else? It is is hypocrisy in the house or in the house of the Lord. Now let me, again, let's define the words here. Hypocrisy. That is not the same as sinning. Every one of you in here, along with me, is a sinner. I have been forgiven of my sin. I have put my faith and trust in the Lord. But you know, I gave my life to the Lord when I was six years old. The amount of sins that I had accumulated at six years old is far less than I've accumulated since I've been saved. Do you see what I'm saying? So 20 years now to have accumulation of sin. Um, Just making sure you're awake there. Do do your math. Um, I'm, I'm more than that. So No, we we need to we need to look at this. So when somebody says, oh, you know, what a hypocrite. Well, What's a hypocrite? As a hypocrite, a Christian who um, realizes they are not perfect and they sin and they repent of it and they acknowledge it and they say this is not right. This is not good. That's not a hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who says, I'm right with God, you need to get right with God, but you're not right with God, but I am, and you need to live like me. But the whole while, they're living a total falsehood of what their life really is like. A hypocrite is not the person who comes and kneels at the altar and beats their chest and says, God, forgive me, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. The hypocrite is the one who puts on a mask, right? This is the whole idea. You put on a mask that says, look, I'm a Christian, and yet you're living in decided disobedience and rebellion against God. That is the hypocrite. And I, again, I think just as we often say, well, that stumbles me. Eh, probably not. Probably not stumbling you, really. You know, Sorry you don't like my vacation plans, but I doubt that it really is going to cause you to cash in Jesus because... We want to go this place, or we booked our travel through you know this company, um, or I have this phone company. I don't think that's going to cause somebody to you give up on Jesus. There are other things though that we've talked about, but hypocrisy in the church, hypocrisy in the house. I'm not perfect. Yeah, all right. That's that's mom, dad, join the club. There's a bunch of us enrolled in it of not perfect parents. Don't act like you are. Don't put a face on with your kids when you have sinned and somehow you twist it all around and it becomes their fault for your sin. You can get away with that for a while, but not forever. And they'll acknowledge. So listen, well, what happens if I do sin? Well, listen, if they are aware of it and you sinned against them or whatever, go and apologize and ask for forgiveness and begin to teach them about the need for you know, dad or for mom to walk in the power and the strength of the Lord. The Lord totally does not approve of that. That's not hypocrisy. That's called honesty. So, but to just go on and to live that way is, can be so detrimental. Those who teach that many roads uh, uh, are all roads lead to salvation. Th- this is something that will cause people to stumble. Those we've already talked about who say, go ahead and sin, live it up. So the Lord has such strong words for the person that would want to or would, um, even inadvertently, um, damage people's faith and not seek to change that. Of course, the, the unwitting person, um, once you know, you, now you're aware, and you've got to deal with that knowledge. All right, so move on, verses three and four. Point number two, what does is, what is the Lord esteem? Jesus esteems forgiveness. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now a lot of us probably really like the first phrase, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. That's it. That's what I need to do. The Bible says rebuke him. For what end and, what for, and for what goal? If you ever show up to rebuke or correct, it is always with the goal of reconciliation. Always, 100% of the time. Well, I just want to let him have it. No, 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 no. That's not the way of Christ. Does the Lord do that with us? No, he doesn't do that with, with mankind. He extends grace. And so Jesus says, hey, let me tell you, I want you to forgive people seven times and this is, this is obviously some using hyperbole for the purpose of saying, as many times as is necessary, you forgive them. That's how often you should forgive them. And this can be difficult. This can be hard. So in the first point that we made of, of how Jesus esteems faith, and be careful of those that would seek to ruin faith, here we're looking at on the other side of the coin where... Um, you, you go to those that have offended you, right? So now you're, you're the offended, you're going to them. And verses 1 and 2 is talking to the uh, offender, um, but now here's the offended. What do you do if you're being offended? What do you do if your brother is sinning against you? You go to him. Well, don't they need to come to me? Um, actually, it says that you should go to him or her. Well, they, they're the ones that need to get it straight. Yes, they are. And guess what? God's going to use you. Isn't that exciting? That you get to participate in somebody coming to the place where they would stop sinning. So if he repents, if he turns from it, if she returns from that, forgive him. You're like, well, seven times in a day. Come on, I don't know if this is legitimate repentance here. This is the hard thing, isn't it? What is legitimate repentance? I mean, we can talk about, we know what it is, right? It's turning from a sin. It's not just like trying to escape the consequences and having a worldly uh, sorrow. It's It's a deep regret, wanting to turn, being broken over it. I just would, but you look and say, well, I don't know, seven times if I could do it. Let me ask you, can we take that same application and apply it to the Lord and that he can only forgive you six times in a day? And you've got to drive through D.C. traffic, by the way, on that day. You see what I'm saying? I mean, how many times do we come to the Lord? Oh, Lord, where did my mind go? Forgive me, Lord. Or, oh, you know, that person shouldn't have a license. You know? And we have these things that we're, we're doing throughout the day. How many times can we come to the Lord? See, the Lord is saying, forgive him seven times. And we're like, yeah, seven times. But you get to come seven times. This is the other day. You get to come seven times. But people get to come to you seven times. Now the rabbis, the popular teaching among the rabbis is three times. You only have to forgive somebody three times. After they did the third time, it's like, done with you. I don't have to forgive four. So Jesus chooses seven because seven is the number of completion. It's the idea to communicate exaggeration, hyperbole. And what is the, the meaning of the hyperbole? As many times as they come and ask for forgiveness is how many times you are to repent. Yeah, but what if they're not real? What about you? What about me? How many times have I had to pray and ask Jesus to forgive me since I got saved at First Baptist Church, Palm Springs, California at the Jimmy Nettles Revival? I think it's more than seven. I think it's been a ton. And you as well. If you've been walking with decades, for decades with the Lord, you know this, that you've had to pray. So we don't have a problem with the Lord showing this, that. But we have a problem when we are the ones that have to dispense it. The world and our flesh tell us that it's a sign of strength to hold a grudge. Man, yeah, don't give them any space. Make them grovel. Make them, make them pay the last penny. Really? Are you sure you want to do that? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. In other words, think about the fact that one day you might be tempted and somebody might come to you. How do you want them to come to you? You better go to them that way. How do you want them to do? Approach you. Restore with Gentleness. And these are such important attitudes for us to know. We restore them to a walk with the Lord. Maybe we're restoring them back, as it is here in verses 3 and 4, in a relationship with us. Maybe we're restoring them with another brother or sister. We're, We're walking out that role of being a peacemaker. So Jesus warns us against bitterness and unforgiveness here, right? We are to show that forgiveness. We are to not hold ill against somebody else. George Herbert said, he who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. He who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. So you get saved, and you come to the Lord, and you blow up the bridge. Well, listen, you gotta, you're going to have to go across that bridge again. And so... Forgive. This is the exhortation, and um, you know, listen, I I I probably shouldn't just jump in in this on this one issue. Well, I'm not actually not going to do it because I want to talk about it. Let me just say it in a more generic way. We need to any philosophy, any um, worldview that is out there that would say there is no redemption and there's no forgiveness and there's no way to make something right is not a christian teaching it is an anti-christian it is an antichrist that is speaking not the antichrist okay but it is an antichrist it's that's not the voice of Christ Christ says forgive seven times and those that would say there's nothing you can do it can never be right and therefore everybody in this category or this group or whatever, they are just, they're lost. And they're not, that's not what the Bible teaches. And so we must be very, very careful to maintain a generous spirit with one another. Maybe there's somebody you need to confront. They've offended you. Listen, I, do you talk to somebody about every single thing that goes on that's wrong? No. There are certain things that really are like a sin against you. And then there are certain things like they're just... People are just rolling through their day. And it's not something to confront. In marriage, if you want to confront your spouse every time they do something you don't like, you're going to have a miserable marriage, I'm telling you right now. Yeah, but it's their fault. And yeah, but it's going to be your fault too. So choose what you're going to correct. Choose what you're going to address. You're going to have to say, you know what, mm, never mind, never mind. Because this is, this is not an issue that needs to be addressed. You're sick, you're tired, you're grumpy, whatever, you're hangry, you need to eat, you know, um, We're just not going to, I'm not going to call you on this. Now, there are times where you should, as we are reading right here. So it's not that you, on every single issue, just like with your children, you can't correct your children on every single issue because all you would do is correct them. So Jesus is... One who esteems forgiveness, verses five and six, he esteems um, he esteems the faith of others, right? Um, I mean, our faith in him. So he has a, a, a faith of other people he esteems, but he also esteems our own faith in him. So then the apostle said to the Lord, "Increase our faith." So after like you got to forgive seven times, oh Lord, oh, oh, Lord, I need more faith. So the Lord said, "If you have." Faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Whoa, that's a lot of faith. That's a lot of faith. Or is it a lot of faith? How much faith are we talking about here? How much faith do you have to have to get a miracle nowadays? Anybody know? I think it's about the same amount of faith as what we're reading right here. A mustard seed. Well, what's the size of a mustard seed? It doesn't matter. This was a, this was a Hebrew idiomatic expression for saying tiny. That, that's what's meant by mustard seed. Right? It just means, it's just a way of saying, it's just so small. So I feel for those brothers and sisters. And maybe you are one that's been put on a trip is that somebody wasn't healed in your family or somebody wasn't raised from the dead in your family or money didn't come through in your family and it's because you didn't have enough faith. How much is enough faith? I wonder, is enough faith just asking? I mean, that, that's a little bit of faith. Lord, I have faith enough to ask. And I don't know. If I'm short on faith, Lord, then... I love what that father said when he prayed for his son. He goes, help my unbelief. If I, if I need more faith, then give me more faith. And so he's saying, you just got to have faith of his mustard seed. I mean, you guys are like, you're thinking, no, oh, I can't do this. There's no way I can do it. Yeah, you can do it. If you just believe, if you just have a, the faith of a mustard seed, you can walk this out. Do you believe what the Lord has to say about how to live life? then if you've got that, then you, you've got enough to go do it. I can't do it. I can't do Yes, you can. Because you have the faith of a mustard seed. and Even the faith of a mustard seed could tell this mulberry tree to be planted into the sea. It would obey. So, you're wondering, do you have enough faith to obey? Yeah, you have enough faith to obey. You, you have tiny faith. That's okay. You have enough. Because the object of our faith is not our what? faith. The object of our faith is God. He's the one that we're believing in, but popular teaching that goes through the church makes faith the object of our faith. You got to have more faith. Well, how do you get more faith? Well, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to have more faith, more faith. Well, it didn't happen. Well, that's because you didn't have enough faith. Well, how do I get it? And so now the focus becomes not the one who's going to perform the miracle, but me who's got to get more faith. Now listen, it's important to have faith. Don't get me wrong, right? This is God's, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is, without faith, it's impossible to please him. But aren't you glad to know that it can be just a mustard seed amount of faith? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. But remember when they were having the prayer meeting for Peter to be uh, released from prison? And um, a miraculous deliverance happened and he is let out of prison And he comes to the house where they're in a late night prayer meeting. And he knocks on the door. And they open the door. I think it's Rhoda, right? Opens the door. And she's freaked out. She sees Peter. She slams the door because she thinks he's a ghost. How much faith did they have in that prayer meeting that he was going to be released? Well, it must have been just a mustard seed of faith. Somebody there was believing it could happen. They had enough faith to gather. They had enough faith to pray. So, yeah, we should be growing in our faith, but let's, let's be careful here. Let's not look at something. And the word of God, when God tells us to do say I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. I mean, if God's calling you to do something, he will, you have enough faith. He gives the faith. So you have enough if he's calling you to do it. Just walk it out. Watch him work. Watch him move. Watch the mulberry tree be plant, uprooted and planted somewhere else. So you've you got to just step out. Verses 7 through 10, Jesus esteems humility in his servants. Now, this is a fun little parable. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you shall eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what our duty was to do. What in the world is going on? Well, I think there's two things. These guys are like, they're like, I don't know if we can do this. He's like, no, you're going to do it. You're going to do this. You're going to have a humility about you. And you're going to have a steadfastness about you. Jesus esteems humility... In his servants. When people have such faith that they can see a mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea, one of the temptations is to become prideful, right? Look at what I've done. Look what I've done. And many men and women have fallen after seeing the blessing of God upon their life and doing ministry and they begin to take credit for it and they end up being full of pride and they think they've arrived and they think they're somebody. And Jesus is here just teaching that humility is the standard practice with slaves and it should be the standard practice with you. You should be humble. I remember Pastor Chuck saying many, many times, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but telling, saying, you know, one of the hardest gifts for a person to possess is the gift of healing or miracles. And the reason why he believed, okay, I I, I think he's worth listening to, um, is that so often people, when they have this gift, they end up getting lifted up with pride. They begin, They get weird. And they begin to Make it all center around them. And, and then in that situation, the Lord, um, well, they become disqualified with their pride and their ministries crash and burn. And um, there's a minister who I'm, I'm thinking of. I won't say his first name, but he, he um, had a ministry and it was called Shekinah Ministries, the glory of God. And things went on, and he decided to change the name of that ministry to his first and last name. Listen, I don't know there's anything wrong. I'm not saying that if somebody has their first and last name, is terrible. But it's just like, when you make that kind of shift, that's really something, isn't it? But it wasn't just a name change. It was indicative of what was happening in his life. And let me tell you, I cannot explain the things that this guy did, but I can tell you the power of God was upon his life. And people were healed, and people, just amazing things happened around this guy. But boy, he just got all messed up. And so, he's talking about great, amazing power to tell a mulberry tree to go from here to over there. And and he's saying, listen, if you are going to follow me, and you're going to obey me, and you're going to see as my servants the power of God working in your life and through your life, you better keep a really humble attitude. You better have the kind of attitude that you would find in a servant when they came into the house. And, um, and, and he says, and which of you? In other words, this is plain everyday knowledge. Not one of them would ever expect that a servant coming in the field would say, Hey, Mr. Master, sir, I'm tired. How about you make dinner tonight? You know, it's like, oh, no, no, that would never happen. And so he's, he's just saying, Listen, this is not what happened. But that, that servant needs to understand his or her place and needs to make certain that even when they've done everything they're supposed to do, that, hey, I am just an unprofitable servant. Keep a humble attitude. It's, it's the idea of, you know, I think I've done enough. Maybe you don't have the gift of healings or miracles, so you don't, that, that's, is feels a little far away from you in terms of applying it to your own life. But think about it in terms like of, of this. I've served the Lord for a long time. As a matter of fact, I've served the Lord for, for decades in this church. I think I have done enough. I think I've done enough. I've taught enough Sunday school. I've ushered enough. I've done enough you know, worship. I've done enough cleaning. I've done enough hospitality. I don't think I need to ever do anything else again. I have done enough. Oh, you're a profitable servant now, are you? You're one that's arrived. You've come to this place where now you should be able to sit down and say, all right, everybody, serve me. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's nothing wrong with being served by another person, but what are you doing? That gift that a person is going to use as a gift from the Lord, empowered by the Lord, and you are just going to sit back and say, it's my turn. I'm not going to do anything. Obviously, we all need our turn, but that attitude that says, I'm not doing anything else. So, it's where humility is lost. Do you remember when you first began to serve the Lord? Do you remember the first, can you, any of you recall the first thing you ever consciously put your hands on as are related to the kingdom of God? Can you, can you remember that thing that you did? You know, I've got a few things running through my mind. When I first served the Lord in that very conscious kind of decision, what attitude was there? Was it was like I can't believe I get to do this? Yeah, that's the unprofitable servant mentality. It's not when it's lifted up saying, "I've done enough. I've, I've look at all my years. I've done this. Now other people can come and they can serve and they can serve me too." And Jesus is saying, "Be careful. Make certain that humility is present in your life." Leon Morris says, When people have such faith that they may be tempted to spiritual pride, Jesus teaches humility by referring to standard practice with slaves. So what's the standard practice with the slave? Don't get lifted up. Remain humble. Do your job. And when you've done it all, don't go pat yourself on your back. You are a sinner saved and plucked out of the fire of hell by the Lord. I just don't feel like serving you anymore. That's, you're thinking of yourself as more than an unprofitable servant. Yeah, but my time. It, nah, that's the problem. It's not your time. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not your time. You were bought with a pri- at a price. It is the blood of Christ. You are a slave of Jesus. And so we should be those that are giving ourselves away let me read first corinthians 9 16 through 18 for if i preach the gospel i have nothing to boast of for necessity is laid upon me yes woe is me if i do not preach the gospel for if i do not if i do this willingly i have a reward but if against my will i've been entrusted with a stewardship what is my reward then That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. So Paul understood that. He goes, if I'm out preaching the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. It's all about the Lord. So important for us to keep that humble attitude And when you feel like you have arrived at a place where you no longer should have to serve the Lord or be engaged in the things that he's called you to do in the kingdom, this is the parable that's for you. This is where you go to. At the end of the day, you're just like, I'm just an unprofitable servant. I can't believe I get to touch anything with the kingdom. Well, I just feel like I'm ready for something a little more important. Listen, Everything. The most menial task, whatever that may be, you can define that. Whatever the most menial task is in the kingdom of God is so many levels above our pay grade. It's far beyond us. We're touching the king and his stuff. And we were saved out of rebellion against that king. And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate Lastly, I think we're on our last one, right? Yeah, verse 11 through 19, Jesus esteems thankfulness. Now what happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers. A terrible disease, incurable in the day. It was a death sentence for sure. And they stood afar off. Those against, they couldn't come close because they didn't, you, you weren't supposed to be anywhere near them. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went that they were cleansed. Can you imagine what that trip must have been like? As they were walking, hey, does my hand look like. Is my hand, does that look normal to you? I mean, am I seeing this right? Fingers began to come back onto their hands. Their faces began to be cleared up. The disfigurement was being taken away. By the time they made it to Jerusalem, from the area of Galilee and Samaria to Jerusalem, these guys looked like they had been at a spa. Like the best spa ever. Brand new, baby, fresh skin. They came walking into the priest. Now, if you had leprosy, so let's say you're, you're out playing with your kids and you hit your hand and it's like, oh, wow, that really, man, something's going on here. And then there's a sore and then it begins to develop a whiteness to it. You were to go to the priest and the priest would look and he would say, okay, come back again in a few days. Let's take a look at this again. And then if it was leprosy, you were pronounced to have leprosy, which at that moment, you cannot go back home. You cannot go back to your job. You cannot go anywhere. You were then a part of a, Um, a community of outcasts that would wander about. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to hear that news? You have leprosy. A priest would be the one that would make that pronouncement on them. And it was the priest, according to the law of Moses, that would have to pronounce them clean. Who's the high priest? It's Caiaphas. Caiaphas. Even the Lord is being merciful to this guy. Go show yourself to the priest. Go show yourself. This would have gone up. I guarantee you it would have gone all the way up to Caiaphas because they had never seen it before in the history of Israel. No record of it. The first time this had ever happened. Hey, what what do we do? They're healed. They were pronounced. And now they're healed. And they went and and did this. So I mean, just imagine that journey um, that as they went, they were cleansed. Verse 15, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving thanks. He was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. So, how much faith did he have? Probably mustard seeds worth, right? And as they walked, now, I listen, why does this guy come back? Maybe, you know, the other nine were Jewish guys, and they could go to the temple. Could the Samaritan guy go to the temple? Mm, he couldn't. But he returns to give thanksgiving. This healing illustrates how Jesus esteems thankfulness, and he wants us to be a thankful people. Um, got a couple of verses I want to show you from Psalm 107. It's Psalm 107, verse 1, verse 8, verse 15, verse 21, verse 31. Just a sampling. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 8. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 15: Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 21, oh that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 31. Oh that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. What do you think? Do you think the Lord wants us to be those that are giving thanks and praise? That's why we give so much opportunity and worship and have those worship, you know, weeks, worship and prayer weeks, and you know our encounter service on, on Sunday night where we sit and we wait and we pray and we worship and we just sit still because the Lord is worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving and we should be like that Samaritan man who comes back and, and just to thank the Lord. When is the last time you have given thanks to the Lord for his goodness? For his wonderful works in your life? When's the last? He wants it. I mean Psalm 107. It's like over and over again. A couple other verses, Ephesians 5, 18-20, you can take a look at that. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, it talks about the importance of giving thanks. So don't be like the nine who ran away and took the good fortune of a healing and never returned to give praise and glory to God. So Jesus esteems people's faith. Right, He values their faith, is probably a better way to put it. Jesus rebukes, or Jesus esteems forgiving. Jesus esteems our faith, our simple faith, like a mustard seed faith. Jesus esteems humility, and Jesus esteems thankfulness. These should be five things on our target. This is what God likes. This is what he wants. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you taught. And you had your disciples remember by the Spirit and record these things for our learning and for our instruction. Lord, help us to care for the the belief and the faith of other people. May we never be a people that stumbles somebody and sends them walking away from you. Lord, help us to be a forgiving people seven times a day. May we be those that are believing for what you want to do. And Lord, we know you are worthy of complete and total faith. I mean, why wouldn't we have complete and total faith in you? But I am so grateful that you minister with us according to our weaknesses. And even if it's just a little seed of faith, you'll work and do some of the most amazing things.